Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning as we have quoted the verse from Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal that comes by the Holy, Holy Spirit. Lord, we're grateful this morning as we come to worship through song and through the hearing of Scripture. God, we're grateful as we come to reflect on the mercy of God for us, undeserved kindness to us, rescuing sinners, those who were hostile to you, enemies of God. You demonstrated your love to us that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's mercy. So Lord, this morning as we look into the face of our Savior and we think about mercy, I pray that you would help us to understand what mercy looks like and that we would, as recipients of mercy, come to understand the significance of distributing that mercy to the world around us. As we're going to find in our story today, This story of the good Samaritan, this good neighbor. You have called all of us to walk in the steps of Christ and to assume the same ministry that you had, not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives a ransom for many as well. Uh, Walking in your steps, distributing the ministry that we have experienced to the world around us. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand the significance of that mission you've called us to. Help us to understand the imperative of that ministry that you've set before us. Help us to appreciate and feel the urgency of that ministry that you have distributed to us. And may we walk out of this room this morning changed. Changed because of your word. Changed because of another encounter with Christ through the scriptures. Thank you for your mercy to us. May we be agents of mercy to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us last week, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10, verses 29 to 37, and it kind of backs up and, and, and picks up the story where Pastor, not Pastor Dave, he was a pastor, but Dave Johnson left off last week for us in verses 25 to 28, which gets to the heart, the essence of, um, of why we exist. He, he asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is there any more important question than that? Can you think of any question that raises the stakes higher than that question. Any question that you want to get right more than that question. Now remember, what was the response? How does Jesus answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, he doesn't answer it directly. It, it's, it's a little surprising, honestly, that, that Jesus, instead of taking the cue of this most important question and answering that question so this lawyer can, can come to a place of, of receiving this eternal life, of inheriting this eternal life, Jesus actually turns the question back on him and says, well, 
what does it say in the law? Now, for those of us who are good Baptists, this is not how we would answer this question. We, we wouldn't say, look at the law. The law gives the answer. Obey the law. The law will help you understand how to be a Christian. will help you understand how, how to fulfill the expectation. will help you come to the place of inheriting this internal life that you're asking about. We, we wouldn't go to the law. We would say, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And maybe if we were good first century Jews, we would say, well, of course, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That would be the right answer in our context. Or we would say from Romans chapter 9, verses 10, uh, excuse me, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. That's what we would think is the right answer. What is Jesus doing? What in the world is he thinking? Well, Jesus turns him back to the scriptures. That's what he's thinking. Because Jesus isn't going to give an answer that isn't contained in the word. And Jesus wants this lawyer, who, by the way, is is a master of the Old Testament, this scribe who has studied and interpreted and applied the law. He understands all the rabbinic traditions. He knows the law like the back of his hand. So Jesus turns this answer back to him, allows him to demonstrate his excellence, his scholarship of the law, and provide what will be the right answer. What is that answer? You remember? It's a twofold answer, and it goes to the heart of the law. What is it? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the answer. That's how you'll inherit eternal life. So, we're going to talk about this some more. How do you know if somebody loves God? How do you really know that what they give their confession to, they love God with their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength? How do you see that? How do you witness that? How do you come to observe and and validate that confession? Well, you validate that confession by the second great command. By the loving your neighbor as yourself. Those who exercise a love for their neighbor as themselves are demonstrating, reflecting a true heart for God. That is the outward expression of an inward reality. Okay, So that John will say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he says, If you don't love your brother who you see, how can you love God who you don't see? Those two are incompatible. So now let me turn this question to us before we get started in our message today. Because this lawyer, this scribe, we're going to find in verse 29, is going to try to justify himself. He he wants to prove that he's really righteous, but something in Jesus' response, do this and live, has now created this inner tinge of conviction, and you begin to wonder why. What's going on here? Let me try to apply this conviction to us. If the most significant question of life is what must I do to inherit eternal life, and the outworking of that, or the evidence of that, is how you love your neighbor, meaning... 
you evaluate the way that you love the people in your neighborhood? How would that show or reflect whether or not you're going to inherit eternal life? I appreciate what Dave did last week. When he turned this around, instead of love your neighbor as yourself, he said, what if you were to love yourself to the same degree that you love your neighbor? That you don't love yourself until you have loved your neighbor and you love yourself with that same kind of expression of love to your neighbor. How would that go for you? Let me tell you, it's not going to go very well for me. Let me tell you, if my spiritual eternity was dependent upon how I loved my neighbors, I've got, I've, got, I've got big trouble. You have big trouble? So there's no wonder why. There's no wonder why this scribe wanted to justify himself. He, he understands the implications. He, he recognizes that in his life there is a major deficiency. He knows that if that the gauge of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, if that, is, if that is showing up in reality by how I love my neighbor, then really he doesn't love God very much at all. And my guess is that you, like me, would come to the same evaluation. That our love for God has a lot of work to do if it shows up in how we love our neighbors. So, so what does Jesus mean? <laughs> who, who is our neighbor? Because it's going to be really important for us to, to get that question right, that answer right, if we're ever going to come to a place of loving the way that God has called us to love. If, if we're really going to love God correctly, properly, appropriately, then, then we better get the answer to this question right. So let me step us through this in three segments. The first is basically, I want to set up, what is the setting for our, for our story today? What is going on here? And, and the reason why we, we need to do this is so that we can just get a feel for, for, for the, 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 the atmosphere that, that Jesus is in and he's telling this story. What is happening in, 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 this, uh, in, our, in our passage today? By the way, if you don't have a Bible, I would just encourage you to use the Pew Bible ahead of you. Uh, page 868 is where we find uh, Luke chapter 10. So we're going to look at the setting. The first for, the thing for us to understand is that Jesus, at this point, is making his way to Jerusalem. He's going up to Jerusalem. We saw that in chapter 9, verses 51 and 53, where it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's making his way through Samaria because he's making a hurried trip to Jerusalem. And in verse 53 it says, The people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry in Galilee had come to a close. At least the focus of his ministry in Galilee had come to a close. Now Jesus is going to serve in places like Judea and, and, and sprinkled into Samaria. And then this region that was across from Jericho in Perea, opposite um, Jericho on the east side of the Jordan River. On at least three occasions, Jesus is going to find his, himself in Jerusalem. First in John chapter 7 verse 10, where he's attending the Feast of the Tabernacles. Then at the end of chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, which is two months later, when he'll attend the Feast of Dedication, 
And then he'll go back to Bethany, which is just two miles away from Jerusalem in John chapter 11. And by the way, at the end of Luke chapter 10, he's in Bethany there as well, but it's a, it's a different occasion. So he's in and around Jerusalem during the time of this. His Galilean ministry is over. And when the people of Israel made their way to Jerusalem for any of these feasts, they would go up. And the reason is because Jerusalem was the highest city in elevation than any other cities around, being around 2,500 feet above sea level. And so to go up to Jerusalem was a, was a major endeavor. We find in Luke chapter 2, verse 42, that Jesus and his family go up to Jerusalem. It says, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. They went up because Jerusalem was up in elevation. Second, I want you to understand that Jesus is rejoicing in the Father's work. That, that, that while he's making his way to Jerusalem, he knows what awaits him there. He has faced the rejection of the people in Chorazin, in Bethsaida, in Capernaum, as he will say, the woes to these cities in, in Luke chapter 10, earlier in our chapter his ministry in Galilee is done. He has set his face to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him there, but he's still rejoicing. And he's rejoicing because he understands that however frail the human heart might be, ultimately it is the Father's responsibility to draw hearts to himself. And that's why Jesus is rejoicing in verse 21 of chapter 10. It says, In the same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, you and revealed them to children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This being the only time in all the gospel records that Jesus is described as rejoicing. And what is he rejoicing over? He's rejoicing over the overcoming work of the Father to draw resistant and rebel hearts to himself. It was cause for rejoicing. And although Christ's ministry in Galilee was met with superficial acceptance, Jesus was convinced that the Father would confirm that work by drawing hearts to himself. And now we find... As Jesus is reflecting on eternity, he's reflecting on this, this Father's work of drawing hearts to himself. In verse 25, this lawyer comes and asks this question about eternal life. And as we learned last week, this lawyer was not a legal practitioner, but an expert in the law of Moses. Understanding, interpreting, applying the Mosaic law in recognizing the rabbinic traditions. This question was the most important question anyone could have ever asked. And Jesus will answer it in the next several verses, beginning in verse 26. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus, in answering this man's question, Do this and live. Now God is working in his heart. There's a, a tinge of conviction that is beginning to form in his heart. The lawyer had just quoted 
and your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He had masterfully constructed this answer, drawing from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, and now grabbing this obscure passage in Leviticus, and the last piece of it, by the way, and pulling it in to construct this, this, this answer. And from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Who is the neighbor in this passage? Who's the neighbor? Well, the neighbor is his own countrymen. That's easy. I think I can do that one. I can, I can love the people who are like me. I can love the people that are around me. I can love the people who believe the same things, have the same heritage, and kind of look the same as me, but um, I hope you don't mean something else. And as Jesus answers this question, do this and live, without question, there must have been a flash of recollection in this lawyer's mind to say, oh, wait a second, which neighbor could he be talking about? Because in verse 18, it's clear it's a neighbor that's in your own country, but just a few verses later, it's clear it's a neighbor outside of the country in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with, with you in the land, and, uh, and you, you shall not do, to him, do him wrong, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Oh boy. I'm in trouble. This verse has a far broader view of neighboring, doesn't it? Certainly, this lawyer must have been conflicted. What in the world? Which neighbor are you talking about, Jesus? Because I quoted from verse 18, but uh, I'm worried that you might be dropping down a little further. Which neighbor are we talking about? Because the stakes are high. Christ has modeled, of course, this perfect example of neighboring. Uh, not the first kind of not only the first kind of neighboring, but also the second kind of neighboring. Jesus is the model neighbor, and this lawyer, if he knew anything about Jesus' life, he, he would have seen that reflected in his heart, in his ministry, in his posture towards people. He would have seen this. While the religious Jews had nothing to do, do with Gentiles, Jesus stepped in. He engaged the Gentile world. After all, he grew up in Galilee of the Gentiles. He was ministering to Gentiles all the time. That centurion back in, I think, chapter 6 or chapter 7 of Luke, who was a Gentile, he was part of the Roman occupation. Jesus was willing to step in and help this outsider, this neighbor, as it were, this foreigner, as it were. Jesus would go into regions like Gennesaret, Tyre and Sidon, Caesarea Philippi. He would go outside of Israel to minister to people who were not like, not like the Jews. Of course, the religious Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. And so much of Jesus' ministry was making his way through Samaria, ministering to hearts that were receptive to the gospel there in Samaria. And yet, the religious, the religious Jews also would have nothing to do with their own people who they considered immoral, unclean, irreligious, or traitors to the nation of Israel. Those tax collectors who were working for the oppressors. 
And if he had looked at Jesus' band of disciples, he would have seen a perfect representation of all of those groups of individuals who were nothing like what he would want to consider a neighbor. Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus had tax collectors as a part of his apostleship. Zealots, fishermen who were the lowest class, Galileans who were considered outsiders. This lawyer probably wouldn't have associated himself with any of these. Jesus was the model, the model neighbor. That was, that's the setting. Now let's move to the story. We find this story in verses 29 to 35. It begins this way. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. We find uh, three different groups of individuals. First, this unfortunate traveler. This man who's making his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem, which would have been 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho, which was uh, at 900 feet below sea level. And so to go down to Jericho was really going down. This winding, wavy, treacherous road, this mountain pass that made its way from Jerusalem to Jericho. Weaving one's way, it was fraught with danger. So much so that there was one section of this, of this path that was called the Pass of Adumim, a name that is related to the Hebrew word for blood. <laughs> because this journey had a reputation. This location on the path had a reputation. Robbers would take advantage of this road, hiding in the rocks, seeing travelers from a distance as they were up high and coming down low, setting up themselves in the blind spots and ambushing these travelers along the way. Travelers that traveled this path knew better than to travel alone. This traveler in the story that Jesus is setting up knew better, and yet he still made his way alone. Often, travelers would, would, would travel in groups to, to provide some level of protection as they were making their way. But we find in verse 30 that robbers came. This man is outnumbered. It was one on many, not one on one. This was not a fair fight. And what we find next is how they took advantage of this man. They stripped him, it says. This is not to shame the man, but clothing would have been a major source of income. People in that day would be fortunate just to have a one extra set of clothes. And so that's why it makes uh, sense for us that when Jesus is on the cross, they, they cast lots for his garments, right? This, this is why. They took whatever they could in terms of income, even his clothing. It says they beat him. There were actually two Greek words that go side by side to describe the intensity of this beating. The, word, the first word, which means to hit, to beat, to flog. The second, which is to lay on or to place on. They laid blows upon him in this aggressive force, this active participle that continues to describe the beating, this aggressive pounding that's experienced by this, this traveler along the way, this mob of merciless robbers. They departed, it says, and they left him for dead. But the key to this story is in this last description, this, the story that contains this final description, they 
leaving him half dead. And that's important. That's that's an important setup for what we're going to find in our next two characters. Who I'll uh, uh, term the unsympathetic religious leaders. We find in verses 31 and 32. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I love how Jesus describes this, by chance, <laughs> lucky guy, he's really fortunate. Wow, who could be as, as happy as this guy and this priest walking down this road? This was his best chance of getting rescued. His best chance of finding help. Because the priests were to embody spirituality. These priests were to be a picture of mercy. The mercy of God. And if you can remember, going all the way back to Exodus chapter 34, how does God describe himself? He says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. That's how God describes himself. And that's how the priests, the Levites, were supposed to demonstrate true spirituality on those around them. So if anyone was supposed to know better, if anyone was supposed to press in and do something, it should have been this priest. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. He knew about mercy. He knew about the requirement to extend kindness. Yet, There were, it may have been several factors that got in the way of him demonstrating the kind of kindness and mercy that this man so desperately needed. First, it wasn't safe. This was not a safe endeavor. It's obvious that this man had fell victim to robbers. Maybe they were still around. And traveling alone on this road was risky. (laughs) Here's, uh, Here's traveler number two on his own who should know better. Here he is, vulnerable, exposed. This was not a place to linger. This was not safe. Second, this was not convenient. Uh, Really, the only explanation for why he would be on this road alone, making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, is that he was in a hurry. Probably has just finished his time of service in Jerusalem as a priest, this week-long service that he would do twice a year. And here he is making his way back, probably making his way back home. He wants to be home. This is not convenient. And this trip, 15 to 17 miles down this windy, treacherous road, this would have taken the better part of an entire day to make it without being burdened by another load. The prospect of having to camp out at night along this path, <laughs> that, was, that was untenable. This was not convenient. But third, and I think probably the most important, he did not want to defile himself. He, he was not going to be defiled. He was not going to become unclean. This man, this victim, appears to be dead. He is half dead. And, and while he may not be dead yet, the, the risk and the danger of taking him along and exposing yourself to the, to the risk of being defiled by a dead body was not, was not something that this priest wanted to risk. Getting involved would be a huge risk for this priest. The law was clear about touching dead bodies. As a matter of fact, there, there are probably no other defiling uh, 
things that you can do to, to make yourself quite as unclean as touching a dead body. Jesus is telling this story by design. There are no chapter divisions in the book of Leviticus. And in the Old Testament, it was written in columns. So every column was, was kind of written down for us. And just a few columns after Leviticus 19 is what we find in Leviticus 21. It says this in verses 1 to 3. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, meaning don't touch a dead person, except for his uh, closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her, he may make himself clean. If his sister doesn't have a husband then he needs to step in and take care of her dead body. But if she's married, her husband needs to do that that job. From a priestly perspective, he considered himself, this was forbidden territory. For those reasons, the audience may have even expected that this priest would, would walk by on the other side as he does. But now we find another individual walking down this road in verse 32. It says, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. All priests were Levites, meaning sons of the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites were priests. Not all uh, had the right to, to be in the temple and to serve in the temple by, by uh, um, doing the, the sacrifices and the, um, the incense inside the, 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 the temple. Levites who were not priests would serve in this way, either through singing or construction efforts, maintenance of the temple, gathering wood, or washing the priestly garments. This Levite would have been set apart for service. He was consecrated to God. His life was given to ministry to God. He would have also embodied the same values and the same character, at least the same values that was supposed to be represented in the law without the restrictions of the priestly um, restrictions of being able to touch dead bodies. But he would, have, he would have had to comply with Numbers chapter 19, verses 11 to 13. It says this, Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. If he does not cleanse himself on the third day, and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. That's a heavy expectation. And by the way, this wasn't just any kind of water. This was water that was mixed with the ashes of a red heifer that had been sacrificed by a priest in Jerusalem. So in his speed to get back to Jericho, get back home, maybe even up to Galilee, who knows where that might have been, he has to now um, set apart himself to stay in the temple vicinity so that on the third day and on the seventh day he can be consecrated so that he doesn't defile himself and be cut off from the people of Israel altogether. It was not worth the cost. It wasn't worth the inconvenience, let alone the, the risk 
to his, to his health and safety. Now we come to verses 33 and 35. And we find the unexpected hero. The unexpected and uncelebrated hero of this story. It says, but a Samaritan. And Jesus does that for effect. <laughs> Certainly there may have been gasps from the crowd. A Samaritan. Ah! This is an interesting turn of events. The Samaritan, as he journeys, it says, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. What will happen next? The suspense is building. The Jews, in dealing with Samaritans, would have nothing to do with Samaritans. As the woman at the well would, would even tell Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 9, the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Although Samaritans had some form of Jewish ancestry, they were considered unclean and tainted because of their ancestry of being defiled by Gentile marriages. In normal instances, this, this victim, this Jew who had been... Um, who'd been victimized, would have nothing to do with a Samaritan. But desperate times call for desperate measures. We find that the Samaritan is moved by compassion. This is an important word in the New Testament because at no other point in the Gospels this, is this word used for anyone other than Jesus Christ. Compassion is always a description of Jesus. And then Jesus will use it in three different parables to describe what godly virtue looks like, to help describe himself, to help point to himself as the object and the, the expression of compassion to others. In verses 34 to 35, we find now what compassion does. It drives him to action. Notice, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He gets personally involved. Compassion drives this Samaritan to action. And there are six action verbs that, are, that describe his behavior here. First, he went to him. The priest and the Levite, what they do? They went around him. Samaritan took action. He went to this man. Two, he bound up his wounds, probably tearing his own garments. And, 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 and we see this, 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 uh, this man who is now giving his own clothes, essentially to, to this man who's been stripped of his own clothes. There is this, this sharing ministry. Third, he pours on oil and wine, this oil that, that was used as a salve to, to kind of help ease the, the, the pain of these wounds. And the wine, which was used as a, as a disinfectant, Fourth, he sets him on his own donkey. Fifth, he brings him to an inn. Sixth, he takes care of him. He spends the night. He's interested in this man. And not only for his urgent needs, but also his future needs. It doesn't stop there. Notice verse 35. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He cared not only for the immediate, urgent needs, he cared for the future needs of this man. And two denarii, which would have been two days' wages, would have taken care of this man's, uh, um, the, the care that he received for 24 days to two months. 
It was this extravagant love. This was extraordinary kindness. And that's the point. This lavish gift of this Samaritan, this hero of the story, who is the assumed villain. Now we turn to the final two verses. And in in these final two verses, we begin to see this picture of our Savior. It says, which of these three do you think, in verse 36, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus has turned this story upside down. The one who was the lawyer would have never considered being a neighbor to this individual. He, the Samaritan who is the outsider, the, the Samaritan who, who does comply with the heart of God in, in administering love to this man, the least expected, the most despised, and considered the furthest away from God echoes the heart of God the clearest. But Christ also turns the question upside down. Notice, the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus returns with, who is the neighbor? The question is not, who is neighbor to you? The question is, who will you be a neighbor to? It's not about who is around you. It's about who you are around. You essentially take the neighborhood on the road, wherever you go. You are meant to express the heart and mercy of God. It, it is a, it's an outflow of the character that is built in. It is an outflow of love for God. And love for God does not depend upon proximity or location. Love for God is transcendent. And so you take your love for God by taking your love for your neighbors wherever you go. You are the neighbor if you decide to demonstrate this kind of love for God. Of course, the lawyer was staring in the face of the outsider, Jesus himself. Jesus was not from the priestly line. Jesus did not grow up in Jerusalem. Jesus was from this obscure town of Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? The focus of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee of the Gentiles. His teaching was not in accord with tradition. Jesus was the outsider. But we see in Jesus, as Jesus begins to ask this question, who is the neighbor? The answer is startling. This lawyer could not bring himself to say the Samaritan. (laughs) He, he, He chokes on the answer. Instead, he has to say, the one who showed mercy. And and in some respects, that's a better answer because that's an answer that points to God himself, to Jesus Christ standing in front of him, the one who embodies ministry, this source and embodiment of ministry. Jesus was standing them. He is the neighbor who came, the outsider. It was Jesus who proved to be the neighbor. How many times... Do you remember through the course of Jesus' ministry where the crowds or somebody in the crowd pleads to God for mercy? In Matthew chapter 15, 22, this woman from Canaan, Canaan that comes to him and says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. In Matthew 17, 15, this man who says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 30, these two blind men in Jericho who say, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. 
Jesus is the embodiment of mercy. He is this source of mercy. This mercy that we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Have you experienced, have you enjoyed the taste of mercy from God? Coming to the place of recognizing your deficiency of holiness, your inability to measure up, coming to the God of mercy, Jesus Christ, asking for mercy so that he can pour out his mercy, abundant, rich, infinite mercy on you. We'll never be people of mercy until we experience the God of mercy. Jesus came not only to be the conduit of mercy to us, but to allow us through faith in Christ to be the channel of mercy to others. And that's what love for God will do for us. When we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we'll then become a channel of mercy like Jesus was a channel of mercy. Jesus is not only the source of mercy, Jesus is also the picture of compassion. Compassion, which which is used 12 times in the New Testament, used every time to describe Jesus Christ. It was compassion that drove Jesus to action. Jesus' coming to earth as a man was not safe, was it? It led to the cross. But it was driven by compassion for those who were needing a savior. And Jesus' coming to earth was not convenient. He came to serve and not to be served. He came to give his life a ransom for many. That was not convenient. And Jesus' coming to earth was not ceremonially or religiously pure. It was not sanitized. But Jesus was a friend of sinners. And although Jesus was a friend of sinners, he was never tainted by their sin. He was righteous and pure and holy so he could lead us into holiness. It was this picture of compassion that stands before us as the, as the pathway for us to not only enjoy the mercy of God, but also to be conduits of that mercy and compassion to others, to drive us to the right kinds of action. Next week, we're going to press into this some more. We're going to go back through these verses so we can begin to apply this to our life, not only as it relates to our families and our church, but also to the world around us. How, how do we do this? What, do we, what practical steps do we take so we can love God and love our neighbors the right way? Because, by, by the way, eternity depends on it, right? In the sense that as we emulate a love for God, and as that love for God shows up truly in our hearts, it will, it will drive us to love for those around us. It will be, your love for God will be reflected in your love for the world. May God help us. Father, we thank you this morning for this, this picture that you have described, this picture really of yourself. You came to seek and to save the lost. You are willing to leave the throne room of heaven You're willing to take on yourself the form of a man to become a servant so that you could lead us to yourself. God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, is not sure about their eternity, 
of how to inherit eternal life. Lord, I pray that even in these moments following this prayer, that they would come and ask the question and we'd be able to introduce them to the Savior. For the rest of us, Father, I pray that you would help us to represent you well, that our love for God would be reflected in our love for the world around us. Help us to grow in both. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you. Have a good day.